Let's go to our scripture reading for this morning. We're looking at Revelation chapter 8, verse 6 to 13. And just as a reminder, uh, we do have our liturgy on our website now. So if you go to our website, newchurchatl.com, and then press liturgy, it's all there as well. Uh, so if you prefer to use the, the paper, totally fine. Um, if you uh, prefer the digital, you can go on our website and follow along. So let's read uh, Revelation 8, 6 to 13. Give our attentive listening to the reading of God's word. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood and these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up and a third of the trees were burned up and all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth, at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you for um, gathering us here and giving us your word, uh, giving us your truth. And I ask, God, that you help us see you rightly uh, through the scriptures. Um, Even though this may be a difficult passage, uh, we ask for your wisdom uh, because you said your word uh, does reveal who you are to us and it does benefit us. So we ask that you would have that effect on each and every one of us here. Uh, as you instruct not only our minds, but also our hearts. And Lord, uh, let our hearts be receptive of of your truth and welcome it uh, into our lives. We ask this uh, in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are continuing in our series in the book of Revelation. And if you recall, uh, we've been covering a lot of uh, seven series uh, so far. Um, seven, remember, is a symbolic number in the book of Revelation. It, it represents wholeness, completion in the Bible. Uh, so we saw the letters to the seven churches in the, in the first three uh, chapters, representing all the saints all throughout history. Uh, then the opening of the, the seven seals um, from, from chapters four to the first part of chapter eight, representing God's total, complete, Uh, judgment on the last day. And today, uh, we embark on the next series of sevens, and um, that's the seven trumpets, and we'll look at what that that means uh, over the next couple of weeks. Now, just as a reminder, uh, just to recap on how we should approach this book, let's remember what this genre is and what it's not. Uh, Revelation is not a history book. It's not an eyewitness account of earthly events. Uh, that progress in this linear, uh, historic sort of fashion. Uh, Revelation is a vision. It's, it's apocalyptic. It's a series of visions. And, and therefore, it's not chronological. And it's, it's, it's more cyclical, if anything. 
multiple cycles that provide us with new angles, more details about the last days. So when you see repeated descriptions of something, for example, um, doesn't mean that thing will happen repeatedly, but these are recapitulations or reiterations of the same thing. And a good example of this is how in Revelation chapter 11, you're going to see John sees the vision of Jesus Christ uh, coming back with his kingdom, bringing his kingdom down to earth and reigning forever and ever. Revelation chapter 11. And then in Revelation chapter 21, he sees pretty much the same thing. Jesus coming back with his kingdom, bringing his kingdom down to earth. It doesn't mean, therefore, there's going to be two second comings with two kingdoms of God, uh, one followed by another. These are recapitulations of the same thing, not this historical progression of one after the other. This is not a history book. And it's a mistake for people to therefore draw, try to draw uh, historical facts or future facts in history from this book. Um, this is not meant to be deciphered as, uh, as sort of a predict predictable um, happenings and, and, and events in the future. No, these are, these are meant to tell us important truths about the last days and, and finally what is, what is the, the coming of Christ going to mean for his people. Uh, moreover, uh, this book is filled with symbols, uh, symbols that are not to be taken literally but understood as allusions. Right? Jesus is the Lamb of God, Scripture says time and time again. What does that mean? It doesn't mean Jesus is this woolly young sheep you know, weighing about 100 pounds and you know, uh, three feet in length or something like that. It's a symbol and allusion to all the sacrificial uh, offerings. The sac the, he is the sacrificial lamb who once and for all takes away the sin of the world, so therefore we no longer need to offer uh, the symbolic offerings through animal sacrifices that cannot take away sins, as it says in Hebrews. Same goes for repeated numbers. Uh, the number 12, 144,000, 24, 1,000. These are not literal measurements but symbolic numbers that find their origin in Scripture, especially in the Old Testament. You cannot understand Revelation without understanding the Old Testament. So it's important to interpret these symbolic numbers and images using Scripture as reference, um, alluding back to Scripture and not pointing to something in our sociopolitical context or our calendar uh, and, and deciphering what it means. Here's a final note uh, before we jump into this. Remember what 2 Timothy 3.16 says, that all of Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for us in, in correcting us, rebuking us, teaching us, and training us in righteousness. Okay? Uh, you have to factor that into your reading of Revelation and your application of Revelation. The sure sign of, of you encountering God's Word is that through it, as you encounter it, it corrects you, it rebukes you, it trains you and it teaches you. In other words, when you encounter real truth, it will make you conform to it and not the other way around. You're the one who has to leave your comfort zone and draw to, uh, close to truth and, and not the other way around. Otherwise, what you call truth, this thing that happens to always agree with you and leave you perfectly in your comfort zone, is not truth. It's just your opinion that you've cemented as truth. In a sense, the best evidence of encountering truth, truth outside of you, truth that you have not invented, is experiencing how truth challenges you and corrects you, even rebukes you. 
for example, if, if someone's really been to a foreign country, and uh, the first service I actually met someone, a visitor who, who came from Hong Kong. If, you, if you've really been there, if you've really been to a city like Hong Kong or Paris or somewhere, they will tell you more than, so much more than what postcards tend to tell you about the city. The postcards give you the embellished, very uh, romanticized picture of a city and caricatures in the sense of that city. But the people who have really been there, they can tell you both the parts that they like and the parts that they don't like. That's getting to know the real place, not just you know, seeing the caricature, but, but all of it. And so likewise, um, if nothing in your faith corrects you, rebukes you, challenges you, even offends you now and then, then I would say you're not really dealing with a true religion, a true God, but just a caricature deity uh, made in your own image, a God who only affirms you, gives you everything you ever wished for. That's, that's not God, that's you. <laughs> that's a God, that's a little g God made in your own image. So as we look at Scripture, let's be ready and even be receptive of all the ways that Scripture will correct us and rub us the wrong way and, and pull us out of our comfort zone. Let's, let's be somewhat ready, anticipatory of that because that means you're encountering truth. Okay. And that's what we're ultimately here for, aren't we? Right. We're not here to feel comfortable. We're here for God's truth knowing uh, it's ultimately God's truth that comforts, <laughs> that truly comforts. All right, with those things in mind, um, as sort of guardrails, let's begin looking at the seven trumpets, starting with the first four uh, today. And I think I can divide this up into two general points. First, we'll look at what they mean, the what. Okay? And then we'll close with a couple applications, and that will be addressing the question, so what? Okay, those are the two points. What? And so what? Um, first trumpet, starting from verse 7. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. Okay, what does this mean? How should we go about interpreting this? Uh, let's start with the meaning of one-third, because the number one-third comes up a lot in, in this chapter. Let's use scripture as a reference uh, and figure this out. In Ezekiel, in the prophet Ezekiel's writing, where God brings um, partial temporary judgment on Israel when they're living in sin and disobedience and worshiping idols, it says there that Israel was divided into thirds for judgment. And it's, it's kind of interesting. God tells Ezekiel to shave his head, and, and it's a mark of shame, and divide his hair into thirds and then one-third, God says, will be burned. One-third will be struck with the sword. One-third is scattered in the wind. And then God explains the meaning of that to Ezekiel, saying, a third of Israel shall die of pestilence and be consumed with famine. A third shall fall by the sword. A third will be scattered um, to all the winds and will unsheath the sword after them and will be scattered as, as exiles. So here you see in Ezekiel, the language of being burnt up wasn't literal, a literal sort of burning up, but a symbolic reference to pestilence and famine. Then later in Ezekiel 38, there's actual language of hail, fire, blood, just like after the first trumpet in Revelation 8. And there in Ezekiel, hail, fire, blood were not literal as well, um, as in these, some of these things falling from the sky. 
they were symbolic descriptions of Israel's devastating defeat in battle against their enemies because Israel opposed God. So the first trumpet is a very clear allusion to Ezekiel and God's partial judgment on Israel. Okay? Uh, and through various symbols, it's alluding back to that and warning people in this context and in our context about the partial judgment of God that can even fall upon God's called out and gathered people, his, his ecclesia, his kahol. What would be the purpose of that? What, what is God's purpose in partial judgment um, and temporary judgment? It's always this. It's to help them avoid final judgment. Partial judgment is always intended for us to avoid final judgment. Uh, it's almost like you know, partial judgments are almost like the, the early diagnosis that says um, you can cure this with a surgery and with rehab. That's partial judgment language. Final judgment language is more like I'm really sorry, but you only have one week, so settle your affairs and say your goodbyes. There is no cure. Okay. Partial judgment means there's still hope. There's hope of recovery. It's almost like the progress reports that we used to get. I don't know if you still get this in college, but I, I, I got progress reports in college, and um, I remember my English professor giving me my progress report by sitting me down in his office and, and telling me, John, you're failing this course. Uh, it was a it was a Shakespearean sonnets course, and he said if you if you don't if you don't re- if you don't make up for your your um, your work right now begin now you will not pass and you will not graduate. So he he then asked me to go memorize uh, dozens of sonnets, and then come into his office, sit down with him, and go through it line by line with him. And if I if I answer all his questions, then he said he'll pass me. So I did that. I went ahead and did that. As scary as that meeting with the professor was, it gave me hope because it's a progress report. Not a, I mean, he didn't tell me I'm, I'm failing like the last day of class. He told me midway, meaning there's still time. There's still hope. And it's also why I have sonnets stuck in my head today <laughs> because he drilled it into my brain. Progress reports, partial judgment, these are kind of similar themes um, the Bible gives us so that we would avoid the final judgment. It means there's still hope. Okay. And, and I know how judgment sounds and warning sounds in our modern years, but we got to acknowledge something, that there, there are two kinds of warnings and judgments, right? There, there's a kind of uh, threatening, empty, manipulative type of warnings that are meant to simply control you, and uh, there's no substance there. It's, it's purely meant to uh, control you for the sake of controlling you. But then there are other kinds of warnings, other kinds of threats that are actually stemming out of love, the kind of warning I give my children, you know, um, to not run off into the streets, you know, to always hold your mommy and daddy's hands, uh, to not put certain things in their mouths and swallow certain things. Um, These are not empty, manipulative, controlling warnings. These are loving and caring and compassionate and kind warnings. Um, God's warnings in Scripture is always the latter. It's a fatherly warning. It's a kind and compassionate warning. And, and like human beings, we, I mean, like our little human beings, like little children, we, all of us human beings, need these warnings very often. In fact, if you think about you know, some of the most life-giving things we consume, the most healing medi- medicine that we, we get prescribed, they all come with plenty of warnings, don't they? Right? If you look at the label that goes on a medicine bottle, uh, the warning label is half the label. 
Uh, it takes as much space as the part that describes the benefit. Why? Because it's a matter of life and death. You have to take it seriously. It's serious stuff. It, it's, that's, if that, and if that's true, and if that's true of our physical reality, that must be true of our spiritual reality. A religion that doesn't warn you is, is a religion that doesn't take you seriously. God's word takes us seriously. He takes our spirituality, our eternities seriously, and therefore he, uh, he warns. There's ample warning in the scriptures. Now, can, can some people uh, take that too far and disproportionately warn and uh, emphasize law more than grace, law more than gospel? Absolutely. So how do we balance that? Well, let's, let's go through the scriptures and let's warn when the scripture warns. Let's comfort when Scripture comforts. And that's why we, we like to go through Scripture book by book, chapter by chapter, because that's really the best way to balance it. Not by how I feel or how you feel, but how, how Scripture presents itself. And here, we're landing on warning. It's warning us. And, and we should take heed because it is serious, serious stuff. Our, our eternity is at stake. But there's a lot of hope given that this is coming to us like the partial judgments in Ezekiel. Okay, that's the first trumpet, the meaning of the first trumpet. And then there's a second trumpet starting verse 8. The second angel blew his trumpet and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea and a third of the sea became blood, a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Okay, there are a lot of allusions here in this chapter to Exodus and the plagues in Egypt. Uh, first of all, mountains were, were often used to describe strong nations. Uh, especially you know, given that many cities were built on hills, mountains. Here, however, the mountain is burning with fire, isn't it? It's a dying city. Uh, and in Jeremiah, in the prophet Jeremiah's writing, chapter 51, God, as God judges Babylon, he says, you are a mountain, but you're a destructive mountain. So I will make you a burnt up mountain. So a burning mountain is a biblical symbol for a mighty nation that is judged by God for its destructiveness, um, instead of it you know, being a good steward of its might and resources for neighboring nations, for the betterment of mankind, when it's abusive of its power and when it's destructive, God judges that. And that's what a, a burnt-up mountain symbolizes. And then there's the, the, the language about blood, um, the, the, the sea becoming blood, and that probably brings to mind immediately how Moses turned the Nile River into to blood in Exodus chapter 7. And living creatures in the sea died, and ships would have become useless as well, just like it, it's described here after the second trumpet. And that could be a symbolic reference to the, the nation's commerce dying because the, the sea was the commerce route. It was a commercial route. And for that to die, that means your economy would suffer terribly. And as the economy goes, so does the nation. So here in the second trumpet, what we seem to be seeing is God's judgment falling upon not only you know, wicked and unrepentant individuals among God's people even, but also nations, especially stronger nations, the, the ones who have, therefore, greater responsibility to better um, other nations, neighboring countries. God would judge their injustice, their corruption, and their destructiveness. Okay? And when you think about whether that's applicable for us today, 
Right, absolutely. This is applicable to us. You and I live in the wealthiest nation in the world. Globally speaking, you and I are the tip of the iceberg. Globally speaking, uh, sure there can be you know 10% above us who are way richer than us. We'll we'll never have that much money in our in our whole lives. But compared to 90% of the rest of the world, we're very rich. So we have a responsibility to steward our wealth, to steward our wealth for God's kingdom purposes and His neighbor-serving, loving purposes. He will hold us account uh, to that, whether we are generous with our resources. Um, Then we come to the third trumpet. What's the meaning of that? Uh, The third angel in verse 10 blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The word Wormwood appears about five times or so in the, in the Old Testament. It's, not, it's never used as a literal star. It's not some angel or demon that falls from the sky. Uh, it's a bitter plant. And it's often used as a metaphor for bitterness, the bitterness of human suffering and affliction, and result, often resulting uh, out of uh, disobedience to God's commands. Amos chapter 6, verse 12, But you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. Lamentations 3.19, remember my affliction and my wonderings, the wormwood and the gall. Okay. So here, this vision of a star named wormwood falling into the rivers and many dying from it, it's, it's a warning about the bitterness of human suffering, human affliction caused by human neglect of God's justice and God's righteousness and God's laws. When you define your own right or wrong, define your own good or evil, and you depart from God's, God's holy character, his nature, and his laws, you lead many to affliction. There are dire consequences to not living according to God's word. Here's one uh, very close to us and terrible, painful example of this. Um, Exodus chapter 21, verse 16 says this. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. Uh, 1 Timothy 1 says, God hates enslavers, liars, perjurers, murderers, those who commit sexual immorality. They're all living contrary to sound doctrine. God hates enslavers. God hates people who steal other people and sell them and take possession of them. What if every self-proclaiming Christian during early American history believed this and lived this and obeyed this? Because we only know what happened because they disobeyed and disregarded how God hates enslavers and and the possession and the selling of people Stealing a man. There are dire consequences to ignoring God's law. Uh, It causes bitter human suffering. And so we have a responsibility to study, as, as God's New Testament people, the meaning of living justly and righteously as God's people. And what what might be the 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 causes that we have to stand up for today, the vulnerable people that we have to stand up for today and defend? Who are the voiceless that we have to be voices for? 
who are the underrepresented that we have to represent. We have to think about these things as God's people because God will hold us to account. Then there's a fourth trumpet. What's the meaning of the fourth trumpet? Verse 12, the fourth angel blew his trumpet and a third of the sun was struck and a third of the moon and a third of the stars so that a third of their light might be darkened and a third of the day might be kept from shining and likewise a third of the night. Okay. Uh, this brings back the ninth plague carried out on Egypt, total darkness. Uh, Joel chapter 2 also talks about the day of the Lord being a day of darkening of the sun, moon, and stars. That's very clearly right. what Revelation is alluding back to, the darkening of the sun, moon, and the stars. This is the, the imminence of God's judgment. God's judgment comes with his withholding of his common grace, uh, the light itself. Warmth of the sun, the light of the sun, these things are withheld as God's judgment, his righteous judgment comes. Darkness, in a sense, therefore, is a, is a sign of God's, God's um, forsaking people and, and handing them over to justice. But there is still this repeated glimmer of hope in the phrase, a third. Because remember what a third means, partial partial and two-thirds are therefore left still with his mercy his light his kindness his grace his patience but there's even more hope when you consider that the one who does this revealing to to the apostle john christ jesus the lamb of god he himself was in a not a third of darkness but a total darkness and he was fully consumed by the wrath of God on behalf of sinners. Matthew 27, verse 45, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was forsaken in the darkness of God's wrath and the right just punishment upon sin so that those who put their trust in him would never have to suffer that darkness, would never have to enter that kind of darkness. By turning to Christ for mercy, we find mercy. By turning to him for grace, we find grace. By turning to him for adoption, we have adoption. Turning to him for light, we have light. So then, as we find ourselves, even in moments of a third of this darkness, right, look to the one who entered the fullness of the dark and rescued you saved you by his grace. There's a lot of warning, but it's two sides of the same bottle, like the, like the medicine bottle. Uh, on the other side, there's hope, there's, there's a cure. There are benefits and there are blessings. And ultimately, here it is Christ. That's been the repeated refrain. The, 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 ones who, the saints are the ones who praise and glorify the lamb who was slain, who keeps us from being slain so these are some of the meanings of the the trumpets the first four trumpets that uh, this chapter gets into that's the what okay so let me close now with just brief comments about so what yeah that's the application uh, for one realize this vision is one of new creation right and with new creation means the old must pass away and the thing about the old passing away, when you put that in cosmic terms, it's, it's going to be drastic. 
like any renovation, it will involve demolishing, removing, rebuilding, replanting. We went through renovation here in this building, right, not too long ago, and, and we saw a lot of that, right, demolishing and removing and rebuilding. It was loud, it was noisy, it was messy, dusty. Were any of you um, just utterly devastated by that? Um, just completely just discouraged and, and in despair because of that? No, why not? Because you knew the new coming. You, because you knew the, 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 the new building, the new chapel is coming. It will take place. It will take the place of the old. Meaning, uh, even as we look around us and we see, okay, that re- what I'm seeing there on the news reminds me of what I read in Revelation chapter 8. Yeah, you might think that, and that's okay. It's how you respond to that that matters. Are you utterly devastated? Are you utterly disappointed? Are you utterly in despair? You don't have to be. He is making all things new. Whatever may pass and whatever lies before me, let me be singing when the evening comes. Don't be discouraged. Instead, relocate your hope. Relocate your hope away from this world to the one that is to come. Uh, when, when this happens more on a personal level, when you look at your life and you find my life is being demolished, uh, removed, uh, foundations removed, see that God is also rebuilding you replanting your foundation. It reminds me of that C.S. Lewis quote about how you can imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he is doing. He is getting the drains right. He's stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. So when you find your life going through the cosmic renovation of Revelation 8, you can take heart because Christ, he lives inside you. He dwells within you. You are his holy temple. So take heart. That's the first application. And here's a, I think here's a second one. Um, at this point, these visions are visions. Uh, it, means, it means this is given for us to see and behold and respond to because the time to respond is now. I think verse 13 is... One of the most interesting verses in this chapter. Verse 13 says, Then I looked and I heard, not the fifth trumpet, but an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth. At the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. An eagle crying with a loud voice to those dwelling on the earth. Woe to them at the blast of those other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. So this is an interlude, in a sense, between right the, the first four trumpets and the next three. 
And there's a couple interpretations as to why this interlude is here, but I think this interpretation is the most likely one. It's the one that sees this interlude as a very, on the one hand, emphatic and firm call, and on the other hand, a very patient and gracious call to repent now before you even hear about the next three trumpets. Repent of your sins, trust in the Lamb of God who was slain for sinners, and serve him as your master and commander, your Savior and Lord. That's repentance. Repentance is not you know, simply saying, God, I'm sorry for what I did. I know it's wrong. Please forgive me. I, 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 I will try my best to never do it again. That's, that's owning what you did. Repentance is not just owning what you did. Repentance is owning who God is, what he has done. He has taken your place in your final judgment. So come to your senses during his partial judgment. Escape wrath. Enjoy eternal life in the Son. Colossians 1, verse 13 to 14 tells us, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. When you look to the Son, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, who came to us and said, before Abraham was, I am, knowing that means he's identifying himself as God, knowing people will want to stone him. He identified himself such a way, so we will look upon him. Look upon the great I am for the forgiveness of our sins, something only he can do. And to look upon him on the cross as the Israelites looked upon the snake that brought them healing. We look upon the cross and we find our forgiveness of sins, our redemption, and our access to God's kingdom there. So we can sing the hymn, The trump shall resound, the Lord shall descend, even so it is well with my soul because we have the Lamb of God who is slain for us and our trust is in Him, our obedience is to Him, our allegiance is to Him. So here we are in the interlude, right? We, my encouragement to you would be repent and be baptized even before we get to next Sunday and you hear about the other three trumpets. Now is the time, this is the interlude Act on it. Respond to what you have seen. Respond to the word of God given to you. And if, it's, if, it, if this is so pulling you out of your comfort zone, great. You're encountering more than a figment of your own imagination, a product of your culture that you sit very comfortably with. You are encountering the true and living God. He's reaching out to you. Respond to him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for these visions that, uh, that can very, very much wake us out and, and shake us out of our, our complacency, uh, the, the, the wrong kind of comfort we enjoy uh, that we distract ourselves with. Um, Lord, give us a, a renewed hunger and appreciation for the truth, the truth that, that rightly um, uh, reorient our lives to what's important, what's really important, what's really urgent. 
um, turning our eyes to you, to our need of salvation, and to to the means by which we access that salvation. Um, God, you are a God who who saves. Help us to see your Savior, um, the Son whom you have sent to save us. And may we put our whole trust in him to seek you while you may be found, uh, to, to seek you when we see visions of partial judgment um, so that we will not ever experience final judgment. In, in fact, on the day of the final judgment, we will worship you. We will rejoice in you. We will welcome you as you welcome us into your kingdom. Lord, let this be our reassurance uh, as we recommit ourselves to Christ as we recommit to obeying him and following after him all the days of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.